and welcome to a new podcast. Something I think we can all agree that the world badly needs. This one is the Booker Prize podcast, which, as the name unambiguously suggests, is brought to you by the Booker Prize, the UK's most famous literary award. Although I promise, not in a propagandary or over-reverent sort of way. So we are uh, on the Strand. There are bells tolling behind us and I can see people going about their daily business while we sit up here recording a podcast. Little, you know? little knowing that podcast magic is about to be made. Exactly, they don't know what's coming to them. No, and um, uh, I'm sitting across from James. Uh, I had no idea who my co-host was going to be and it was so funny when I first walked into the room that we met in to, to talk about the idea for this show. And I saw that, I don't think you'll uh, disagree with me, James, you are my polar opposite in every single way imaginable. <laughs> Hold on a minute. I sort of know what you mean. It was like a, a, a sort of slightly weird blind date, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it really was. But, but then I thought, you know what? We are going to get something amazing out of this. Um, and James... Um, yeah, I've only just met you, but as far as I'm aware, uh, you're a brilliant writer and you're also a sometime radio host. And uh, 17 series, if you don't mind, of a, a top literary quiz on Radio 4. No, it, it's absolutely fine. When you say polar opposites, you mean by the sort of main, the obvious things, by the main you know? markers yeah, of exactly. today, aren't they? You yeah, know, exactly. Gender, race, uh, age. Age. Uh, but that's, that's but not the that's only great. things in the world. They're not. And the first thing we bonded over was the fact that we believe that people should still be able to smoke indoors. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah, so no, that's right. You know, smoking does work, doesn't it? We, yeah, we popped out for a fag and that was basically all, yeah. all sorted. Uh, and today we're going to be discussing our favourite uh, book and novel across time. Uh, so, Joe, what have you gone for here? Um, I've gone for Patricia Lockwood's No One Is Talking About This, which was shortlisted in 2021. I was a Patricia Lockwood fan beforehand because um, she, I don't know if she does them anymore, but she used to do amazing reviews for the London Review of Books. And you think of the LRB as, you know, long form, sometimes sort of eccentric, but basically quite literary and serious. And um, she would just like go off on a tangent about foot fetishes or whatever. And this was in the LRB. And it was just like, it was the best thing in the world in my brain. I actually had no idea that no one is talking about this was going to come out. Um, but then it had been um, shortlisted for Booker in 2021. And, and so this pandemic time, so I ordered it online, which is really fitting. And then this like hysterical hardback, which has like this blue and purple cover with a rainbow going diagonally across it and clouds at the bottom and sky at the top arrives and it's so brilliantly ugly <laughs> you know it's just like it's it's perfect for the book it completely gets to the heart of this idea of the portal um being this surreal space and um you know and somehow that there's a real world outside of it uh i must confess i came across the book well i i i, I read the reviews and i heard about it when it came out but i I, I read it because it, I knew it was going to be Joe's selection today. Uh, can't deny that. And I, I, I was going to say, no, it, I don't think I was, I, there was anything particularly, I hadn't read it because of, you know, I didn't like the sound of it or anything. It's just that the, the books you read, what you end up reading is quite a lot of luck. Um, yeah, because there's a lot of books out there, as you may, may have noticed. And um, 
and, and also because I, I review as well. So quite a lot of the books I, re- I read, I read because I've been asked to read them. Yeah, um, excellent taste, James. Yeah, no, in, 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 in this case, no, it's fantastic. I, I'm absolutely thrilled to have this recommended. I absolutely love it. Uh, do you want to give, tell us a bit about it? Give us a basic yeah, intro. Um, so no one is talking about this. Uh, it takes place um, in a, like fairly contemporary, I would say probably um, like 2018-ish era. It doesn't feel like the pandemic has really happened. No, and Trump's in, around, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, Trump's around. And it's got two halves. And the first one is about this kind of uh, internet personality who's asked to uh, speak at various conferences in the British Library or you know weirdly at one point in Ireland and um, she is the sort of person we would describe as being very online she refers to the internet as the portal and the first part of the book is this kind of deluge of memes and just like things you thought you forgot that you saw on Twitter over the last um, five years or so. And then the second part flips and she's kind of brought into the real world because her sister has a baby who's born with Proteus syndrome, uh, which is when a baby kind of grows uh, far too fast to kind of support itself. Um, And you kind of see how all the philosophizing at the beginning ties into this extraordinary reality at the end. So it ties into it or or but the reality that in the end she's ill prepared for something quite so real from what's gone on on the on, on the portal. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean the I always thought that um the choice to give the baby Proteus syndrome was kind of parallel to her experience on the portal in the sense that she's got way too much stuff this kind of overload that's growing and growing in her in the same way that this baby is growing and because this baby is um spoiler alert it's uh doomed to to die after something like six months what she's able to do with all of the information that she's acquired is basically just give it the whole world from all this stuff that she's learned online. And fair enough, some of it is really absurd and inane and stupid. But I think the kind of conflict that she comes into where she has to pass out what truly means something means that she's able to give it the best possible parts. And in this way, this baby can have a life because of the time she spent on the portal. But equally, she can have a life because of this baby who's brought her out of it. Yeah, I must say I read the second half, I must say, slightly differently than mm. that it, it, essentially that she was, um, so the, I mean, the first half is fantastic. Mm. <laughs> uh, it, I mean, it's just, it's really funny, full of, you know, it, it doesn't, you know, the, the, the idea that we're living in a stream of consciousness that's not even ours. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, 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 you know, so we're the blizzard of everything, she refers to the first sentence, we're living in this blizzard of everything. Uh, there's lots of good jokes, she tries to sort of go along with things, and she, capitalism, it was important to hate it. Even though that was how you got money, yeah. uh, or, or that, that's just, I mean, there's one bit where she's really, really trying hard to hate the police, uh, we could, but unfortunately, her dad's a policeman, so that, that that makes it a bit trickier. And and just, I mean, it, it just not only talks about you know what the internet's like, but it really shows you, and it, it it's fantastic. And then in the second half, from my reading of it, something quite real happens that isn't on you know is, slightly to her puzzlement isn't you know isn't even though everything's on the internet, this isn't. Nobody is talking about yes, this. Yes, that's what title. Yeah, and 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 um, and I think she, well, she says at one point. I think 
um, this is the narrator speaking, or the, well, it's not, not exactly the narrator because it's third person. If all she was was funny, and now and none of this was funny, which is the her sister's a very sick baby. If all she was was funny, and none of this was funny, where did that leave her? And I think that that the book sort of confronts that a bit in the second half. Because so I mean, rather heartlessly, I think the second half's less. I mean, it's just about a, a baby dying. Well, this is actually I was going to ask you this because I think there is like there are people who really loved this book, and then there's an equal amount of people who were really confused by the flip and it left them completely cold. And I have always been so puzzled by why that is. Because I think the second half only enriches the first one and I'm like, you fools, how dare you? I must say, annoyingly, you make quite a good case for that, but I'll stick to my little plotting case yeah, for yeah, now, yeah. <laughs> uh, which is that I think she acknowledges that that she's not playing to her strengths anymore. That that bit about, you know, if if this isn't funny and I'm funny, what, what what do I do now? Yeah. And I think she's aware of the fact that the internet, that the, in the second half, both as, in the writing but in, in the experience, this is not what she's for in a way. She's not playing to her strengths anymore. And, and part of the book is about the fact that the internet has made us, made real life not our strengths anymore. Mm. But at the same time, she isn't playing to our strengths anymore. There was, there was, there was a headline of... Um, in the Onion, the satirical magazine uh, mm-hmm. after nine eleven, which was, um, I think it was, shattered nation longs to care about stupid bullshit again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, just three weeks ago, we cared what Britney Spears wore at the MTV Awards, and yeah. and now and now we're you know we're talking about life and death and family. And in a way, I think part of this book is is, is a yearning to care about stupid bullshit again. Yeah, that's very true. There's the part where she um, talks about the age gap between her and her sister. And um, she says that basically her, her her sister is kind of brought up just at the point where seriousness kicked in, you know, just at the part where um, people stop stumbling out of cabs, you know, with two hours in their bags and wearing yeah. juicy couture track pants. And um, there's a new kind of... But I find that really, really fascinating as a theme in this book as well, because... Something that um, kind of puzzles me about it and part of why I chose it as my favourite is that um, I think it's a really great experiment in seeing what is actually important, not just because of the plot, but because all the sort of paraphernalia of the internet that it refers to so minutely um, is stuff that was in the culture at the time, you know, like Harambe the gorilla or what have you that felt like, you know, it was everything to us. We were seeing this, you know, on our phones every day and discussing it. And, you know, whenever Trump said something stupid, we were there. Um, But how long does that last? You know, when I reread this book, I realised that I recognised fewer of the memes than the first time because it was less fresh and that I probably need a set of footnotes in the back to be able to... I was thinking about that. There was an addition of this in sort of 50 years or even 10 years, I mean, it is going to need a lot of footnotes. But but then I, it's kind of interesting with what you're saying, because, you know, I think the first time I read this and I was reading all these memes, there was this kind of grin of recognition. And I was like, ha, you know, I remember that. I remember laughing about this on Twitter. And this time, the ones I didn't recognise, I read them so much more seriously. I just, I was scouring my brain and I was like, what is the meaning of this? What's the relevance of this? How do I fit this into my life again? Um, when at some point it was just stupid bullshit to me that I was, you know, wasting time scrolling over. So that transition of, I guess, levity and ease into the real matter of life and how you pass it is kind of inherent 
in how this book moves through time for for its readers. No, it, no, it is, and it, it it does do that brilliantly. I, as I say, I feel pretty heartless in a kind of you know someone who's been on the internet too long kind of way <laughs> to say that you know the second bit about the death of a child is sort of almost less engaged. I mean, it's just it's it's perfectly done. Uh, but I've read books like that before. I've never read a book like the first half of this. Actually, it's, it was extraordinary, and it does it does make you realise what it's doing to us. Mm. For good, I mean, she, she's not completely anti-internet, is she? But but she's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but she is aware of you know what it's doing. The, the idea that we're sort of disappearing into this common understanding of things, where we all have to. There's one bit she's talking about. You know, every few days you have to decide who we're all going to hate now. Yeah. And then that sort of passes away, and then we hit someone else. And it could it could be for some massive war crime, or it could be because of their stupid recipe for guacamole. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have you? Um, did you by any chance look her up? Because she is similarly active on Twitter in the yeah. way her protagonist. Is. Yeah, no, she is. Yeah, she she did a famous. Um, didn't she want? She did want a Paris review saying. So, what did you think of Paris? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, no, she, yeah. So that's how she made her name, and I think she has given talks and things hasn't she yeah she has. so th- this is her world uh but it's a world that when she comes to write about it she obviously can see from the other side and, and the second bit's autobiographical as well isn't it? i think that yeah, did happen to her, to, to her sister and to her um i just actually can't get over the fact that you weren't moved by the baby I'm <laughs> sorry, <Jay>. <laughs> <laughs> how, how can you uh, i know uh well uh, no i was i was moved i was moved by it but no that, that, that that's 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 unfair i was moved by it but it was, i was a Aware of how I was being made to be moved by it, if you know what I mean. It just felt—it felt like a, a, a good novelist treating a, a sad subject seriously, and properly, and interestingly, and affectingly, but still more like you know what novels are like in a way than what novels do with that sort of subject, rather than the first bit, which which it, 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 it had to be that way round. Yeah. But it did mean I think that the, the second half. As I say, she is aware that in the second half she's not playing to her strengths, and I think she isn't quite. Mm. I think I think yours isn't an uncommon view. It'd be great to do a poll of people who have read. No one is talking about this, and see, you know, do they prefer the first half to the second? You know, is it equal par? I, mean, I have to say, the first half, uh, uh, in the first few pages, you you are You're disorientated. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I did. Uh, you know, my rather you know scholarly notes at the side read, "What does this mean?" Quite a bit. Uh, but then you, but then you kind of get, then you get, then you get into it. Yeah, you do, and you're kind of carried by it. But I had exactly the same thing. Uh, the first point was when she referenced um, stimming, which I should know because, like, I think half my friends have had an autism diagnosis by now. You know, the whole world's autistic at this point, and I was like. I don't remember what stimming is. And I looked it up online, I got this really serious, you know, set of definitions of what stimming could be from Google. And then at some point I was like, oh God, do I do it? And I was like, no, no, go back to the book. (laughs) Stimming, we should say, is is a sort of uh, of rocking movement or something or or anything sort of hypnotic that you do. Yeah. Um, And I I think what we haven't emphasised enough is just how many fantastic one-liners there are. Just how many good jokes. I mean, it's... you know, it's incredible. Some of it's quite stand-up-y, isn't it? I, I think the... Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think there are two ways that she does it. 
and one of those ways is really standoffy like when she's you know in bed with her husband and um she's hypothesizing that she'd be able to bring trump down by seducing him and having sex with him and her husband's like don't be ridiculous and then she like whips her top up and she's like do you think he wouldn't go for these yeah. and that's like the end of the argument but then i think there are other parts of it that actually feel almost like a russian novel to me that are incredible like when she's talking about the czech girl on the train who's kissing her boyfriend's wrist like it's the first strawberry of spring yeah, yeah, yeah which is just such incredibly exquisite prose. Uh, okay, Joe. well, in, in the end, we both loved this book in slightly different ways, but both loved it. And um, why do you think it was, was book shortlisted, obviously, deservedly, as far as you're concerned? Yeah, um, I, I have two theories, and the first one is probably not true. Um, so Patricia Lockwood, uh, her father is actually a priest, and before she wrote this book, she uh, wrote one called Priest Daddy, which is kind of a quasi-memoir. And on the judging panel uh, in the year that her book was shortlisted, um, no one is talking about this. One of the judges was uh, Rowan Williams, who is Archbishop of Canterbury. Who's former Canterbury. Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah. yeah, there you go. The, the clear one, the obvious choice. Um, and I, you know, obviously Lockwood and, um, and Rowan would have never met or discussed or anything but i like to think somewhere in my mind that rowan williams is just like a really huge fan of priest daddy and he was like arguing lockwood's bit in the meetings like you know she's one of us uh which is probably not true but then the the second reason really um and this is why i think actually it was incredibly cowardly uh thing to have not named this book the winner for 2021 i think it was really the only choice um is uh i'm, I'm gonna steal your homework here a little bit partly because really at least the first half of this book no one has written like it before no one has you know managed to distill the absolute mess of the internet in a form that preserves the idea of this portal you know you get a sense of it you get a sense of why it's such a bewildering and wonderful and strange and brain rotting place to be in a way that makes total sense of it you know and that gives you a kind of in a way that you can zone out and see it for what it is you know people hold their phone in their hands every day and they're so in it and I doubt that you know, that year, a lot of kind of internet novels were coming out. And I think the most, you know, famous comparison to Lockwood's book is um, Lauren Euler's. Um, God, I can't remember what it was called. Lauren Euler also wrote a, an, an internet novel that year, but it was dry and it was so polemical and it moralized so much. It was just boring. Sorry, Lauren, you know, if you ever hear this. And what Lockwood's done again at least in the first half of this book and I think convincingly in the second as well is basically broken into a whole new form of literature that addresses this massive aspect of our contemporary life and she's done it buoyantly and with such style and and with such kind of a grasp of her craft I think it should have won and really really funny yeah and, that's what, and also I, I, just to add to that I mean it's easy to do a polemic against the inter internet, isn't it? Yeah. But what she does really, really well is our love-hate relationship with it. She does the love bit just as much as the hate bit. Yeah. When she's away from it, she's slightly, you know, bereft. 
Yeah, and I think that's how we how we all feel. There's that amazing point where she asked her husband for a kind of safe that takes the shape of an encyclopedia to lock her phone inside so she can't access it before bed. And then after about four days or something, she's like trying to break into it. She's trying all these different passwords on it and she gives it to her husband and she screams, I need my phone, I need my phone. And he unlocks it with the numbers one, two, three, four. And it's like one of the best bits of that book because you you want to be away from your phone. You want to be away from the internet. You don't want to know what's happening, but you do. You need to. You have to. It's so simple, right? It's like that passcode. The access is so easy, but it's so complex at the same time. Okay, I've gone for uh, Patrick McCabe's The Butcher Boy, which was shortlisted in 1992 for the Booker Prize. Um, I think slightly surprisingly, because he wasn't a well-known at all then, I think obscure would be the word. And there were some big names around on that list, uh, Ian McEwan already quite big. And it ended up being a shared shared winner between Michael and Archie's The English Patient and Barry Unsworth's Sacred Hunger. And it was after that that the Booker people brought in a, a, a rule that you weren't allowed to share prizes. Uh, until the judges in 2019 rather notoriously completely ignored that and insisted on sharing it between Margaret Atwood um, and uh, Nadine Evaristo. Lest we forget. Lest we forget. And, 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 and that, that might be a subject for a future podcast or it might be something we never talk about ever again. Um, but anyway, it's a book uh, in which it's, it's narrated by the main character, Francie Brady, um, who is the one, he calls himself the one and only Francie Brady, which is kind of true because I've never read a book like this before. I have since because... Um, but they've all been by Patrick McCabe because he specialises in what uh, I think is affectionately known as bog gothic, um, which is small towns, small town in Ireland, um, a main character who is to a greater or lesser extent mad, normally to a greater one, and uh, ends up doing something horrific. And that's what happens here in this small town in the early 60s in Ireland. Um, fair to say, Francie doesn't have a happy childhood. His um, dad is a violent, abusive dr- uh, drunk. Uh, his mum, possibly as a result or possibly anyway, has mental problems of her own um the house is a complete mess um and the trouble really begins when a boy called philip nugent moves into the town and he's come from england and he went to a private school and he's got a blazer and everything and um Francie becomes sort of obsessed with him and his enviable middle-class life you know with two parents who love him uh, a clean house piano lessons and so on except that he can't ever admit that he's envious so i think one of the things the book does brilliantly is that Francie, at the same time, knows things and refuses to accept the fact that he knows them, um, including his envy of, of uh, Philip. And um, he, Francie, and his friend Joe um, con Philip out of a collection of comics. And Mrs. Nugent comes around to complain at the Bradys and refers to the family as pigs. And this absolutely sears him to the heart. Now, he does his best to wear it as a sort of badge of honour, but really it's a deep source of shame. And a, a, a shame that increases considerably when he after a particularly bad family row runs off to Dublin and when he comes back um, I think a couple of weeks later um, his mother whom he had vowed to protect and look after always all the days of his life um, has committed suicide um, at which point he breaks into the Nugents badly defiles their house including with his own excrement and is taken off to a reform school where he is abused by a priest and possibly worse as far as he's concerned, gets a letter from his old friend Joe, um, which clearly suggests that he is now friends with Philip Nugent Joe, 
And again, this is something that he kind of realizes and refuses to realize at the same time. And he still looks back to the, he looks forward to when he gets out of his reform school and him and Joe will be doing what they always used to do. And then when he gets back to the town after that, obviously Joe's nervous of him, doesn't want really want to be his friend anymore. And what's fantastic is every time Francie tries to sort of blend in, he's got this kind of excruciating small talk, hasn't he? And he's sort of saying to the ladies, ah, well, sure, that's Christmas over for another year. Be quiet now till St. Patrick's. Now you've said it. <laughs> and, and everyone obviously is just sort of nervously backing away from him, wondering what he's going to do next, because he does continue to be extremely violent. I think I think from then on, I could easily summarise it by saying things go from bad to worse. Uh, they really, really do. And one by one, all his, his consolations, like like his friendship with Joe, but other things that he sort of thought or, or pretended to think were true, all of them are stripped away. And in the end, he ends up um, attacking. Well, he, I don't think this is a spoiler because it's on pe- the very first pages, very first sentences, which I think is brilliant too. When I was a young lad, 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, so even that's, uh, I lived in a small town where they were all after me on account of what I'd done on Mrs. Nugent. That on is a fantastically Irish preposition, I think. Um, anyway, after what he's done on Mrs. Nugent, he's taken away um, to a psychiatric uh, prison hospital uh, where he s- remains for the rest of his life. Now, and now it, it, it might, might sound, sound, make it sound horrifying, and it is. It is. But it, but, and it, but it's also quite funny, isn't it? And it's also, I think, I, th- I think it's, but, but I also, th- also think it's, uh, it's, its main thing is it's just heartbreakingly sad. It is that. I'll um, give you that. He, 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 possibly he never had a chance. And partly that determination to just always be cheerful, you know? He's always trying to look on bright sides. And one by one, those bright sides just go dark, dark and darker and darker. But I think the real, I think the real time for the book is we do have sympathy for him. And he's not, He's not a psychopath, is he? Because he's got feelings, quite soulful feelings. I mean, some of the writing's very lyrical. One of his great memories is just him and Joe when they were kids scraping the ice off a puddle. Yes. And then he revisits the puzzle, the puddle, you know, when he's late, when he's older, and he sees other kids doing it. He said, you know, this used to be me and Joe's puddle. And they say, you told us that yesterday, mister. Go away. And, and, and um, Patrick McCabe has said it's, it's not a naturalistic book. It's not, it's not realism. He calls it the social fantastic, which is a good phrase. But I, I, I think it is, I think it has got a psychological realism. I think he, it hangs together as a, as a character portrait, and that makes it even more alarming. So, you know, the first time I read it, it blew my socks off completely. Yeah. Uh, when we read it for this, it blew my socks off again. I just wondered where you stood socks-wise. <laughs> they were definitely blown off. I, I agree with you that the tragedy of this book is that you actually can sympathise him, sympathise with um, Brady. To various extents. I mean, I have to admit, about halfway through, I found myself wondering just how far my sympathy could go because this book really is horror after horror. It piles up very thickly. Um, And at some point, I kind of thought, you know, at what point does your sympathy begin to wear away? And I think it does a little bit, but just the right amount so that you never condone what he's doing, but you know why he's doing it. Um, And if, if someone just loved him, would it all have been okay? Well, do you know what? That's interesting because towards the end, um, when uh, Mrs. I don't know whether it's Connolly or Connolly. Connolly, yeah. Connolly. She comes round to scrub the house so that he has somewhere to live. And uh, maybe by that point, he's so far gone that he can't really recognise it. And of course, he's seen her talking to Mrs. Nugent, which he sees as a kind of form of betrayal as well. Um, but I think that was the sort of chance and, I, you know, when I read that she'd sort of scrubbed the house, I was like, 
I, I, well, I, I'd already seen a summary of the book, so I knew there was no way in help. But I had this brief flicker of hope that, you know, this semi-maternal figure who he's spoken to so many times in the shop, he's gossiped with the ladies with her, you know, that that maybe she could somehow save him. And I think the other thing that maybe made me think that was that, you know, quite late in the book, he's always got that image of a snowdrop that represents the potential beauty of the world to him. And um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think, I think the book is full of people who at various stages, uh, often quite ineffectually, but in the best way they can try to love him. You know, his father visits him in boarding school, somewhat self-servingly, but tries to, you know, extend a hand of friendship, but too far gone. His father tells him about, you know, okay, your mother and I fought quite a lot yeah. towards the end, but, but we had this beautiful honeymoon in this boarding house in That's a lie, Donegal. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we uh, people loved my singing and we prayed the rosary together on the beach and so on. And this becomes one of his consolations as well. At least he's got that. And then he visits the boarding house and speaks to the landlady. And um, No, but, you know, if, if he had believed in this idea that his father tried to put together that, you know, once upon a time he and his mother had been happy, and they had a great honeymoon. And if Francie in that moment had thought to himself, I'll pin my hopes on that, you know, had never run away and gone to the boarding house to find out it was a lie and instead had gone back to his father, which he eventually does, you know, and gets a job and tries to have this sort of happily domestic life. Yeah, but it's not quite in that at all because there's also one thing, I don't know, we should spare, how much we should spare the listeners, but basically his father dies in an armchair with a, yeah. of a heart attack. Um, he just mentions that my, my dad was very cold, but then he carries on. He keeps keeps on talking to his dad. He goes out to buy drinks for his dad, and um, and and eventually, you know, the authorities break in, and we just hear the words, um, "Yes, he's riddled with maggots." Yeah. So, so his dad's basically decomposing on the chair. Yeah. While, but but again, while he's trying to put on this brave face, and it's after that that he goes to yeah. goes to the boarding house, and and in fact, the landlady uses the phrase, you know, "He was a drunken pig," so the word "pig" again. Yeah. Uh, but even then, there's a tiny bit of sympathy. There's a, quite a small thing because his dad grew up in um, an orphanage in Belfast with his with his brother, um, and his father seems to have had his you know what, what happens to Francie too, which is he he remains convinced that his dad's going to come up and come and pick him up any day now, and his dad obviously never does, and and Francie's dad turns into what Francie's dad turns into. But when the landlady tells him uh, what a drunken pig his dad had been on the honeymoon, he says, and he attacked that poor priest from that. Um, orphanage in Belfast so presumably that was someone who'd mistreated him there so there's just this endless cycle even one of the cops says doesn't he the police the sergeants who takes him away for one of his many offences uh you know he couldn't have been any different yeah and I'm depressed James no I mean it 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 it, 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 it but it, it, it is a sad book but it's not it's not just that is it it's there's something it's, it's there's something about fancy that's God, no, I mean, I'm not, not a fan of this phrase it, at the best of times and possibly not in the context of Francie Brady. Life-affirming. <laughs> but sort of, he, he just will not give up until he has to give up. I mean, he, he does end in complete defeat. Yeah. But, it, but it, I think most of us would have been completely defeated a long time before. And he, and he, every now and then he sort of gets his back, you know, shopping back together, goes down, has a word with the ladies, makes his excruciating small talk, buys a few things. Yeah, I guess that's because he's not entirely tethered to reality. No, not in the slightest. Um, and that's that's the only way that he can go on. So I, I don't know if that's like, if how hopeful a message that is. 
I mean, I I really... I'm hopeful would be overstating it, certainly. Well, I don't know how, how life-affirming a message that is, because it... It's not life-affirming. No, I don't mean the message of the book is life-affirming. But it, that it Francie isn't, is. But there's character. something about Francie that is... He's sort of irrepressible, isn't he? Can I ask you something, really? Because um, it's maybe a flawed question. Not everyone agrees that you should ask this question of a book, yeah. but I was kind of trying to think, you know, what is it for? You know, why does this book exist now that I've finished reading it? Because, you know, actually... If I had to, if you gave me a choice, did you like it or did you not like it? I'd be forced to say that I liked it. Like isn't really the word, um, but there's something about it that I admire. And I can't put my finger on what it is. And there's an introduction in my version that, you know, references the fact that um, some people see it as a sort of allegory uh, for colonialism in Ireland. You know, other people think that's entirely not the case. I was trying to think, you know, maybe, maybe this is interesting to me because it's a compelling psychological portrait but I cannot put my finger on what it is about this book that meant I finished it you know and and wanted to have the experience of reading it and I'm not I'm, I'm glad I did but I, I'm still not sure why no it's a, it is a most peculiar form of entertainment I'll give you that I've never I've never, I've never heard that um colonialism theory before my my theory on the possible allegory uh, would be different actually it would be Ireland itself tells itself just as stupid consoling myths as um as Francie does mm. and the island is i think it's quite you know it's quite angry with Ireland. i think um michael collins turns up a bit doesn't it? everyone claims some sort of link to michael collins yeah. uh this it's this is early 60s so it's still the sort of heyday of catholic island um towards the end there's the cuban missile crisis but they think yeah. our lady is going to protect the town and so on and that and that our Lady protecting the town against you know nuclear we weapons is you know possibly a bit like you know um, the fact I used to have a friend called Joe will protect me from all the terrible things that you know I could potentially do. Um, so that was, that was my only allegorical reading. But didn't you think the the prose is fantastic and, and sometimes quite funny? I ca I don't know. Maybe this is kind I'm of like... I'm trying to think of a, an actual joke. <laughs> yeah, pick one. <laughs> uh, there's no Patricia. There's no Patricia Lockwood for gags. I must say. Um, so, okay, I don't know really. Um, just, just this, um, so he's, it starts off with him in hiding after he's done what he's done on Mrs. Nugent and he's in this sort of hide that him and Joe built again. This is very important to him. Him and Joe built this fantastic hide and they used to have fun there. Obviously by this time he's well on his own. Um, you could see plenty from the inside, but no one could see you. Weeds and dr driftwood and everything floating downstream under the dark archway of the bridge, sailing away to Timbuktu. Good luck now, weeds, I said. Then I stuck my nose out to see what was going on. Plink. Rain, if you don't mind. You know what I mean? There's something... There's nothing so funny but irrepressible. But I wasn't complaining. I, I liked rain. The hiss of the water. This is the life I said. I mean, this is the life I said. He's... It, that's sort of funny, isn't it? He's in... He's, he's killed someone horribly. He's... The whole town's looking for him. He's in a... Hide. <laughs> this is the life I said. I, I mean, it, I mean, it's, it's heartbreakingly funny, but it is quite funny. I don't know. I, I'm really struggling to see it. I think, I, I wonder if this is maybe, um, I don't know. I don't know what to pin this down to. I was about to say something dumb about like a generational difference and maybe like I've been brought up in a way or like in an environment that sort of, as we were talking about with the Patricia, with the Patricia Lockwood, you know, is now taking things very seriously. Um, but actually I, 
chat so much bollocks in my life. I, I can't really say that's true. I think maybe it's... We could explore the generational thing if, if, if you want. I think the one thing I've noticed in my reading time in the generational is that almost the the um, weird revival of the idea that books should be virtuous, that novels should be virtuous. So if you read, um, you know, reviews of, at least at Chortle or Soxoff at, you know, 80s university, uh, the, the reviews of Wuthering Heights or Jane Eyre, you know, were being attacked for being immoral and not the sort of thing people should say or do, uh, not edifying. But book reviews now are, are use exactly the same sort of phrasing, really. You know, the, the, um, and uh, Patrick McCabe is not edifying; he's not virtuous, uh, but it's fantastic. And books books should almost not be virtuous. Uh, it w- would be an argument on novel should it shouldn't be what life should be like. But or it's it, that, I suppose that's that would be my generational argument. Yeah, do you know what I was thinking similarly to what you said about reading the first half of um, No One Is Talking About This? I had that with the McCabe. I've never read something that I couldn't place in one kind of neat box in my head after some thought, you know, and say definitively, you know, even if what I was thinking about it was sort of dialectical and, you know, I could, it was like an either or argument but at least I could say that but I'm actually speechless over this novel I (laughs) funnily enough for a podcast have nothing to say about it other than I'm shocked that's honest I I, yeah that that might be generational too I'm 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 not I'm not surprised you're shocked but I'm surprised that you're this shocked it 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 might just be you know something really simple because I all the reading I do is you know for book reviewing or you know for podcasts or um you know for for academic work and I'm very used to kind of reading things into a text or reading things out of a text and maybe this is flooring me because what it is what all of this is leading to very simply is just Francie Brady as a character who is just so utterly convoluted and lifelike and you know such an extraordinary achievement to have placed in a novel you know if anything you read this book and you're like god writing like this exists and someone is capable of it and the idea of Francie Brady is something that exists in the world and that is terrifying and extraordinary and I hope it never happens to me, you know, but also just, you know, I hope it never happens to me. But on some level, I need to know about this sort of thing, not because, you know, not for the reason that you watch horror films to kind of inflict terror on yourself, but because of the sympathy that is in the core of this book that you feel, I need to know because how else would I find out? This is a safe way to find out about it. But I think it does it does conjure pity and sympathy. Yeah. And, and to keep the sympathy going for him is is astonishing, really. Um, yeah. And yes, you're right. You know, you, you, you sort of root for him. You don't root for what for everything he does, but about quite a lot of what you know. Um, well, you don't root for much as he does, really. But just, just for him to just, you know, Get maybe, them. yeah, so maybe Joe would just say, yeah, okay, Francie, let's be friends again. But can you blame maybe, him for not? No, absolutely not. No, God, no, if we met him, we, we, you know, he'd back away nervously at the very, very least, you know, you know absolutely. And, he, you know, he can he can go off on one at any point. Um, you just want him to get better. Yeah. And also that, that heartbreaking phrase, that was the best laugh yet. He, 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 he kind of pretends that things are funny. 
Yeah. You know, Joe said that he didn't, uh, you know, didn't want to be my friend anymore. That was the best laugh yet. You know, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I absolutely, I think it's, I think it's marvelous, and I think he's marvelous. So, James, I, I can see why you love it, but why do you think this book was shortlisted for the prize? I mean, obviously, it's, it's difficult to read the judges' minds, but I rather hope um, that it was that sense that that I had that. There's really nothing like it, or there hadn't been much like it. I mean, the paperback I've got has got on the front Roddy Doyle saying, brilliant, unique, reading fiction will never be the same again. And I, I think that's a sense for quite a lot of people who read The Butcher Boy is just, what the hell is this? I mean, you know, what, what, where, what, what, where's this come from? I mean, Patrick McCabe was a sort of school teacher in, in a, um, himself from small town Ireland. Um, he sort of got up at seven o'clock and just wrote this, you know, every morning apparently, and just wrote this in a bit of a splurge. Um, and he came up with this astonishing voice and this astonishing series of events and I think it's hard to read this book and not be in some way blown away yeah definitely for, for, for good or ill definitely well thanks so much Joe. and uh, just before we go uh, we promised at the start there'd be ways for listeners to get involved so please do like and subscribe to the Booker Prizes podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts if you want to get in touch, you can leave comments about this episode at the Booker Prizes Substack, as well as the usual Booker Prizes social media accounts on the portal, as uh, Patricia Lockwood would put it. And that's, as you might imagine, Twitter, Instagram and TikTok, where we also publish and promote a whole host of fascinating articles and videos, it says here, about our books and authors. <laughs> and finally, please do check out the official website at thebookerprizes.com, where you can find long reads, interviews, features and information about the upcoming awards, the International Booker and Booker Prizes. Till next time. Bye. Bye. The Booker Prize podcast is hosted by Joe Hamia and me, James Walton. It's produced and edited by Benjamin Sutton, and the executive producer is John Davenport. It's a Daddy Subiot production for the Booker Prizes. Mm-hmm.